According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles as we get started. Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. This is our first session in this episode. If you're following along in your Harmony of the Gospels, we are at episode number 8 in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus. Quite often referred to as the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan or the Good Samaritan story. Uh, which is not a wrong title for it or anything. But we forget the fact that the Good Samaritan didn't exist. That the lawyer is the one being spoken to. The one who challenged Christ. The one who put the Lord his God to the test. And it is a confrontation with a lawyer with respect to the Mosaic Law. And that's what we want to evaluate here this morning. So the title in the harmony we're making use of is Lawyer Hears the Good Samaritan Story. And so that's the title that we are going with in, uh, in this study. All right, Luke chapter 10, verses 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do? To inherit eternal life. Legitimate question, don't you think? All right. Well, we're going to answer that. And the Lord answered that. And that's uh, what we'll have some fun with here today. Before we do, though, we've got to make sure we're in fellowship. It would do us no good to sit here in carnality. So let's take time for silent prayer. Making sure, first of all, that all known sin is dealt with. That we are in fellowship, walking in the light. But then also that we uh, adjust our thinking to a humility mindset whereby we can receive the word implanted which is able to save our soul shall we pray mighty father we do recognize that apart from your grace we uh, would not be here could not be here and indeed apart from your grace we wouldn't even want to be here father we thank you for the uh unmerited favor that redeemed us and that is presently at work in and through us for your good pleasure we thank you for the privilege of assembling together for studying to show ourselves approved rightly dividing the word of truth and as we rightly divide this morning as we examine elements of uh, doctrine that pertain to the law and pertain to uh, the fulfillment of the law in christ i pray that you might open the eyes of our understanding give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. As we look at it, I think we're familiar with the story itself, uh, which begins here in verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers. All right. And this is the story. And the story is very well known. And you've got the priest, the Levite, and then the Samaritan. And obviously, when Jesus asked him, which of these three proved to be a neighbor, uh, any human being has to agree that, uh, that it's the Samaritan. He's the one that proved to be the neighbor. The priest was not. The Levite was not. Those who uh, maybe should have been, those that we hold to a higher standard or have expectations, uh, should have been. And so, as a definition of neighborliness and as, a, uh, as an illustration of sacrificial, unconditional integrity love... Uh, there's no better story in the Bible to tell that than this story right here, unless you want to talk about the cross itself. Uh, this is a, a story of sacrificial, unconditional love. And so that's what 
We're going to deal with it in those terms. But what introduces that story? What introduces that story? And that is the challenge to Jesus when he puts him to the test. And so that's what today's study is going to focus on. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, we spend the entirety of this message dealing with the lawyer and dealing with the law uh, in order to set the table for what follows in terms of... uh, in terms of the grace and the love that's applied here by the Good Samaritan. Because let me ask you, in the story, we haven't read it yet, but you should know it anyway, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, where in there is anything related to the law? See, nothing. Nothing in terms of legal observance, nothing in terms of obligation, nothing in terms of, of uh, sacrifice, nothing in terms of obedience, nothing in terms of anything. See, as far as the law goes, other than the statement that is found in the Old Testament that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the only attachment to the law that that it can be found there is that, well, he was expressing love. See, so we'll, we'll deal with that. Let's start with law this morning, though, and understand what is law supposed to accomplish? Is law supposed to provide for eternal life? Well, this man thought it was. And that's what we need to lock in on. Okay. A lawyer, you're so smart. Everybody answered no, didn't they? Does the law provide eternal life? No. Okay, well, thank you, Father, for this class. We're <laughs> I guess class is over. We're all done. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do? Or doing what will I inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Interestingly enough, you all answered no. He said, Jesus had an answer for him. He said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? That's an idiom that we'll address here uh, momentarily. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus has a little bit different answer. You all said no. Jesus said, yep, follow the law and you will live. Now, it is a slight change in the vocabulary because he asked about inheriting eternal life. Jesus said, follow the law and you will live. That's a present uh, activity of living that coincides with the present activity of following. It uh, does not guarantee eternal life because there's no guarantee of eternal following when uh, human beings are trying to be obedient to a system of law. Nevertheless, it is a bit of a quirk. It's a bit of a of an awkward answer that Jesus gives because it is um, for the sake of argument and it is only for the moment that he uh, allows the man to believe that legal obedience uh, produces eternal life. All right, because we know it doesn't and Jesus knows it doesn't, but he allows the answer to stand for the moment in order to then build upon it with a story. And that's the story of the Good Samaritan. And very quickly, it takes him into a a realm here that communicates. So this is kind of an interesting facet. I think it's a feature uh, of instruction that we can learn from and even a device that we can make use of. See, and it's not deceitful in any way it's not lying it's not uh it's not um deceptive because christ wasn't a liar he's the god of truth 
But he allows, he, he recognizes where a person's coming from. And he uses that as his springboard to teach a message of truth. And so allowing for a uh, misconception to stand for the moment, for argument's sake, we, we, this, we do this all the time, allowing a misconception to stand for the moment in order to follow up with the truth, with an illustration, with a story, with a parable, um, I find this to be interesting. And that's what we'll comment on when we, when we break this down here. All right. So he said, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29, before we even get to the good Samaritan in verse 30. But wishing to justify himself. Here again, we have a clue in terms of the lawyer's motivation, self-justification, self-righteousness. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Typical lawyer, he wants to know the, the fine print as it were. All right. Well, let's talk about the lawyer a little bit. It's not the lawyer the way we use lawyer, but that's okay. We, we can still poke fun of him. Um, some points of study. All right. First of all, let's recognize the context. Where does this story take place? Where does this episode fall? So point one, this episode follows the Lord's comments. Not only does it follow, it even illustrates the Lord's comments contrasting the wise and intelligent with the babes to whom God the Father unveiled His plan. You remember in verse 21 and in verse 25, Jesus was praising the Father for His glorious plan. And this episode follows that praise. It follows it and illustrates it. This episode follows and illustrates the Lord's comments contrasting the wise and intelligent with the babes to whom God the Father unveiled His plan. God reveals Himself not to the wise and intelligent, but to babes. And here we find this illustrated with this lawyer stepping up. Just put by way of remembrance to what we did in the last few weeks in the previous section here in Luke chapter 10. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father. This was, God, this was Jesus Christ and his worship to God the Father delighting and celebrating in his awareness of what the Father is doing. This is worship. And this is worship as a consequence of doctrine of the soul identifying the Father's ongoing work through our uh, testings and circumstances in time. So at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to babes or to infants. All right? It was an expression of, of Jesus Christ worship, identifying. Now, again, we, we dealt with this slightly over the past few weeks. We'll have more, uh, I think, to explore in this regard. When the Father hides things, why is He hiding things? Does He hide things because He's deceptive? Does He hide things because He's cruel? No, he hides things because he's wise. And he hides things because in keeping with his plan to glorify Jesus Christ, there are those to whom uh, things are to be revealed and there are those to whom things are to be withheld. Some things get hidden for a period of time in terms of mystery until such time as they are unveiled in the proper season. That's what happens here. That's what happens in the church. So there is an aspect of praise with respect to this. Um, all of these things, by the way, are matters that I hope we can learn from with respect to our own 
testimonies, our own evangelism, our own um, witness in this lost and dying world. If there's people out there that are bitter or they're uh, confrontational or they're argumentative or they want to debate evolution or they want to do all this other stuff and they want you to prove God's existence, you might be led to not engage in that activity, to not give answers to those questions. There are answers to those questions. But you may not be led to give the answers to those questions because your mandate is to give an account to any who may ask. And if they're hungry for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. And if they're asking, such as, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Have the discernment to know. Is this a testing that's coming from diabolical motivation in order to bring about a, a work of wickedness? Or is this a humble seeker who truly wants to know the truth? Is this a, a, a lawyer or is this a Philippian jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? The questions are nearly identical. What must I do? Uh, vocabulary is slightly off in terms of what uh, doing what shall I receive uh, eternal life versus what must I do to be saved. Vocabulary doesn't totally match up, but the verb text, uh, tenses are similar and the, the questions themselves are largely identical. Motivation behind them is the direct opposite between this man and the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer wanted to get saved. This man wants to test the Lord and bring about his downfall. We're told that in this very verse. So here's what Jesus Christ is, is praising him for, that he has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. That's the, that's the scribe right there. That's the, the lawyer right there. When we break down lawyer for you, you're going to see that. Uh, he's an expert in the law. That is the law of Moses, that this was a class of people. Largely, it's a term synonymous with scribe. These were people that became experts in the Bible, in, at that time, the, the Old Testament, the law of Moses. And so that's what we'll address here next. And so here's a lawyer. Here's somebody, if he truly is an expert in the law, then he should be first in line to identify Jesus Christ. <laughs> because the law spoke of him. You know, Moses wrote about him. All the sacrifices were a picture of him. All of the feasts and festivals pointed to him. If this guy's really an expert in the law, he'd be the first to see it. No, that's uh, something for us to keep in mind. All right, now secondly, I just give this guy a name, a certain lawyer, Namikos Tis, vocabulary. Namikos is your lawyer and Tis is a certain one. A certain lawyer, whoever he is, we're thankful we don't know his name. I just have to call him Namikos Tis. Namikos Tis takes his stand to put the Lord God to the test. Something, by the way, he's commanded not to do when you see the vocabulary on that, you'll see, uh, we'll give you the Deuteronomy 6.16 passage that prohibits us, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That is a shall not do. There are consequences for doing this. And we don't know his name, we just call him Tis. There's a lot of Tisses in the Bible, by the way. Jesus Christ speaks about a certain this, a certain that. And so we can think of Tis as a proper name. It just means a certain one. In this case, it's preceded by Namakos, so we know he's not just a certain one or a certain man, he's a certain lawyer. The Namos is the law, and Namikos is an adjective based on the law, a certain legal one. He is a legal one. And he's going to tempt the Lord. We're going to give you vocabulary here in a moment. First of all, what is a Namikos? Subpoint A, Namikos, N-O-M, N-O-M, 
I-K-O-S, Namikos. Number 3544. By the way, it's not that different from terms we've studied in other classes. Um, For instance, he that is spiritual, he that is natural. The natural man cannot accept the things of God for their foolishness to him. But the spiritual man, he who is spiritual, does understand or appraise the things of God. So uh, the, the ekos ending, whether it's uh, psukikos for natural or pneumatikos for spiritual, the ekos ending is one we're familiar with. And here we have ekos uh, tacked on to the end of namas. So if you have the natural man and the spiritual man and the carnal man, uh, this guy is the legal man. This guy is the legal man. That's descriptive of his being. Descriptive of his being. Consider how steeped you have to be in a subject in order for it to be descriptive of not only who you are, but what you are. This is what we addressed Sunday morning. We talked about becoming your gift. Where Paul was urging Timothy to not just use his gift, but become his gift, to be absorbed in them, to become the uh, the gifted provision for that assembly. All right, so Namikos, number 3544, it's only used nine times in the New Testament. An expert in Mosaic law. Obviously, at, the, at this time, uh, the law involved in a Jewish context is going to be the Jewish law. It's going to be the law of Moses. In other contexts, for example, in Titus where you have a Gentile uh, context, you have a, a, a Roman frame of mind in Titus 3, 9 and 13. Zenus the lawyer that Titus is supposed to help along. It's not clear that Zenus the lawyer is a Jewish lawyer, expert in Mosaic law, or whether he is an actual uh, ambulance chaser, all right? Secular lawyer, uh, expert in the Roman law. Remember, Romans were very big on their law. That was their pinnacle for Western civilization was Roman law, the Pax Romana. Their view was that heaven was on earth and it was on earth in, in the Pax Romana. So we'll have to get to heaven to find out whether Zenus the lawyer um, was a Jewish lawyer, expert in Mosaic law, or whether he was a Roman lawyer as per um, secular legal practice. But the uses in the Gospels, Matthew 22:35. that's a parallel, by the way, to this text, uh, Luke 7.30 is the previous time we've actually encountered lawyers. We've only encountered, this is only the second time in the whole chronology of the life of Christ as we've gone through. It's only the second time that we've encountered Anomikos. First time was in Luke 7.30. Let's grab that real quickly. Hold your finger there and just a few pages back ought to take you to chapter 7. It's not that far away. And here he's speaking about John the Baptist and everybody was all excited about him. And he says, of those born among women, there is none greater than John. That's, that's high praise coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, see, keep this in mind because this is the same contrast when Jesus was praising the Father, hiding these things from the wise and intelligence and revealing them to babes. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. In other words, they weren't trying to justify themselves. They acknowledged God's justice. They acknowledged that they were sinners saved by grace, and God's a God of grace, and John was the herald, and Christ is the Christ, and they had a positive response to the truth of, of the Lord's message. 
But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. Not having been baptized by God. Rejected God's purpose. Fascinating verse. Won't get into it, but that's where it is. All right, that's our introduction to lawyers. This is now the second time that we've encountered lawyers in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Our text here in Luke 10, 25. We'll come back again in chapter 11, verses 45, 46, and 52. Luke 11, 45, 46, and 52. And this is, um, he's pronouncing woe to the Pharisees. And it's got a pretty lengthy woe message to the Pharisees about being whitewashed tombs and blah, blah, blah. And then one of the lawyers stands up and says, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. (laughs) So Jesus says, okay, you're right. Woe to you lawyers as well. All right. So uh, you got lawyers there in, in chapter 11, verses 45, 46, and 52. Woe to you lawyers. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter and you hindered those who were entering. So when he left there, the scribes and Pharisees were very hostile. I wonder why. Um, it'll come up again in, in chapter 14 and verse 3. The last use there. And um, here's a man suffering from dropsy. Problem though, it's the Sabbath, so what's Jesus going to do? He answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So before he does the miracle, he puts it to them. Do I break the law by serving God and healing this man on the Sabbath day? All right, so this is Namikos, expert in the law of Moses. It is largely parallel to the term scribe. To the term scribe. The lawyer was expert in the law of Moses for Jewish observance. And here's where you pick up on the fact that it's parallel. Hold your finger here in Luke and, and glance over at Mark 12:28, And you find it's uh, the same story Luke was telling. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him what commandment is the foremost of all. And then it's... Uh, the reply there, it's pretty similar to the question that this scribe is, uh, is asking Jesus about. So we find scribes and lawyers used in parallel. The key, though, to understanding this particular lawyer is that his motivation is tempting the Lord. His motivation is to put the Lord to the test. It's a compound. Peirazzo is to test or to tempt. You compound it with ek peirazzo, number 1598. Ek peirazzo, to put to the test. And this, by the way, is the vocabulary you have in Matthew 4.7, in Luke 4.12. So vocabulary when Satan drives the Lord, or when the Holy Spirit takes the Lord in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil says, um, throw yourself down from this high point. God will catch you. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Deuteronomy says, thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. This is an imperative. This is a prohibition. You and I are not to put the Lord our God to the test. We are not to ek peirazzo the Lord our God. And yet that's exactly what this man is doing. This is what Israel did ten times to the Lord in the wilderness. And uh, we see what happened to them. <laughs> God destroyed them in the wilderness. Other than Caleb and Joshua, no one passed through to the land flowing with milk and honey. 
So, in terms of his question then, we observe thirdly, the lawyer's question is similar to the Philippian jailer's, but with a contrary motivation. Similar question, but contrary motivation. Again, I just... I didn't give you the scripture. It's Acts 16.31. What must I do to be saved? Acts chapter 16 is Paul's second missionary journey. The vocabulary is slightly off, but I think it's pretty well clear that it's the same, same matter. What must I do is the first part of it. I have to do something. Doing what? Now, in this case... It's described as a, it's used as a participle that brings in a purpose clause in the uh, subjunctive verb next, but that's okay. Poieo is to make or to do. 4160. It's in the active voice, meaning that the subject is the one who accomplishes the activity of the verb. What must I do? Doing what? We, uh, we deal with this all the time. In fact, it's in our basic doctrinal studies notebook. We ask this question, and you'll be asked this question. You need to be ready to answer this question. If somebody comes to you and wants to know what they must do, see, um, don't get all theological on them and say, there's nothing you can do. Because Christ did it all. Okay? You, you can be very, very right, but in your theology, you're going to ruin it for this unbeliever that's coming to you with a question. Because they want to know what they must do. Tell them what they must do. Okay? Because you've got the doctrine to understand what they must do. And you can, you can separate it in your mind. Okay? This is how we broke it down in basic doctrinal studies in the doctrine of salvation. Now, if their motivation is Philippian jailer humble, then intrinsic in that question, what must I do is the thought, what must I do to receive the benefit of what Christ has already done on my behalf? What must I do to receive the grace gift that's freely offered? All right. If the question is not humble or is not oriented to grace, if it's oriented to works, like this man, this lawyer, then do, what must I do, has the idea of to earn or to deserve or to work for or to somehow save myself or bring about my salvation. Okay? And so you can ask that question in one of two different ways and you can answer that question depending on the motivation behind it. What must I do to deserve my salvation? Nothing. You can't. You can't work for it. You can't deserve it. You can't earn it. You can't create it. You can't bring it about yourself. Nothing. The answer to that, what must I do, is nothing. What can you do? Nothing. But what must I do to receive it? You must believe. If you do not believe, you do not receive. He who believes has the Son. He who does not believe, uh, the wrath of God abides on him. And so, you want to be very clear that it's nothing you can do to earn it. The work's already been done. But you must believe, you must place your faith in, in, in Christ to receive the gift offered. It's given, it must be received. So here's the question. Doing what? Aorist active participle of poia. Doing what? Inherit eternal life. Kleronomeo uh, is the verb. K-L-E-R-O-N-O-M-E-O. 2816. I'll say that again. K-L-E-R-O-N-O-M-E-O. 
R-O-N-O-M-E-O, kleronomeo. In other words, to function as an heir, to be a kleronomos, an heir. What must I do to function as an heir of eternal life? To receive eternal life. To be saved. Different vocabulary, same question. Now, it could be a future active indicative, could be an aorist active subjunctive. Both forms are identical in the first person. I'm taking this as a subjunctive because it is a purpose clause for the participle that precedes it. So we, we might say, by doing what causes me to receive or to become an inheritor of eternal life? Or what must I do to be saved? <laughs> All right. The verb is, what must I do? And the purpose is to inherit eternal life. If that helps you out in your thinking. Now, as I said, the motiv- motivation is entirely different. The Philippian jailer actually wants to know so that he can do it. The, um, this man thinks he has it. <laughs> this man is asking a question for something he's already convinced he's earned and deserved. For something like the rich young ruler who thought, man, he'd done it all. And then, and then Jesus said, well, actually, you're missing one last thing here. Okay. Truth is, that's the same situation here. This guy thinks he's got it already until uh, he hears the Good Samaritan story and realizes he doesn't have the orientation to neighborliness. That he doesn't love his neighbor because he's got a, uh, he's got a faulty view of, of who his neighbor actually is. Now, I hope that we can, we may not always know right away. Um, we're to be innocent as uh, doves, you know, shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. And so if somebody asks us, we may not know. We may think, oh, hey, somebody wants to know about Christ. Great. And so you start in good faith. You start in, in the integrity of your heart. You're giving them the gospel. You're talking about eternal life, talking about Jesus and all kinds of stuff that you love to talk about. Only then does it start to become pretty clear, hey, you know what, this guy, he's, he's just, a, uh, he's not, he doesn't want to know. He's not really hungry. He's, uh, he, he wants to debate. He wants to confront. He wants to instruct, things like that. So just ask for wisdom, guidance. Seek, uh, seek his counsel and, and have discernment. And it may be at some point where you just wash your hands and step back and say, no, that's pearls before swine. I'm, I'm done talking to you. When you really want to know, I have answers. But you get, I think you get pretty clear at that point that they're not looking for answers. Now, point four, Jesus replied to the lawyer, his answer, and this is great, he appeals to the law, (laughs) it's the guy's specialty, right, you know, if uh, it'd be like, you know, a medical doctor comes to you and something and you have a chance to say, well, and you throw a question right back at him, but you do it in the medical realm. So tell me, what do you think? You're a doctor. Or some, as they have a question for you, maybe they have a, a law enforcement background. You know that's their background. You know that's their field. That's your specialty. And so in your answer to them, you just throw it back to them and form a question of your own. And, but cast it in the mold that they, that's on their, uh, on their playing field, on their background. He replied to the lawyer by appealing to the law. And the lawyer's own recitation of it. When he says, how does it read to you? 
we have uh, it's, it's an idiom. This was the me- this was the means by which they conducted their synagogue service. This was the means by which they, uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, this group, this is how they conducted their Bible studies, their synagogue services, was that they would have, they would have a, a scripture reading, of whatever length, shorter or longer, what have you. They would have a scripture reading, and then they would give their recitation. They would give their discourse. They would give their commentary, their uh, interpretation. See, And so uh, that's what Jesus was doing, by the way, in, in Luke 4. Uh, when he's reading that section in Isaiah, and then he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the to the scribe, and he takes his seat. You familiar with this passage? Luke 4. You should be familiar with it. So, um, the... Um, Well, it comes to Galilee and then Nazareth in verse 16, Luke 4, 16. Entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, stood up to read. Notice the standing position. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book, found the place where it was written. And he quotes uh, from Isaiah 61, he quotes verse 1 and one-third of verse 2. And he stops his reading one-third of the way through verse 2. He can't finish the second part or the third part of verse 2. And then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. So, from standing to sitting. Okay, Standing is for the, the, the public reading of Scripture. It is, thus saith the Lord, here's what the Word of God says this. And then you, you roll up the scroll, hand it back to the attendant, then you sit down, and then you give your discourse. You give your interpretation, your hermeneutic, your application, your exhortation. See, standing, representing the Lord's authority, and you take the seat. So it's very clear, clearly demarked, this is what I'm reading from God's Word, and then you take your seat, and now this is what you're teaching from your own frame of reference, maturity, understanding, and so forth. Um, and, and anything you say while you're sitting down, uh, you can debate. <laughs> that, that can go back and forth, right? And Rabbi so-and-so might say this, Rabbi so-and-so might say that, uh, this is somebody's learned opinion. This is somebody's judgment, somebody's understanding. And, and that's completely in bounds for arguing about and this and that and so forth. When you're standing up and you're actually uttering the God-breathed, inspired word of God, then that's the voice of Jehovah. And you don't dispute that, not one jot, not one tittle and so forth. Kind of see the difference on that? All right. So he sits down and he began to say to them, and, and all the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he gives them a, uh, a message demonstrating the present day fulfillment of that Isaiah prophecy. And he obviously had more words than just today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He went on and gave them a Bible class. And then the result of which, in verse 22, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. So this is his discourse. This is his contribution, his interpretation, his commentary, his, his uh, uh, expository preaching from the text. See. So back to Luke 10 now, when he says, what does this read to you? 
we have the idiom employed there that references the stage of the synagogue worship where the scripture reading is done and the person then gives his understanding, his application, his, his sermon, if you will, on the text. So uh, you can quote the scripture. Great. Now roll up the scroll. Take your seat. How does this read to you? Expound the scriptures. Expound the scriptures. That's what he's saying. And when he says, how does it read to you? Okay. So he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said, okay, sounds good to me. <laughs> all right. Interesting. Now, what was his answer? The lawyer's answer is a doctrinal synthesis. In fact, he's going to combine some scriptures. He combines, he makes a com combination of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And actually, he does so in a marvelous way. Absolutely marvelous way. This is, uh, this is a hermeneutic that we learn from. This is a, a methodology of handling the scriptures that we make use of. It's called comparing scripture with scripture. It's called categorizing doctrine classifying realms of teaching together with other passages of Scripture in a synthetic way so that you have the complete picture on what God has to say on any particular subject. And uh, in this passage and elsewhere, Jesus Christ points out that when you take 613 commandments of the law and you boil it down to two great commandments, loving the Lord God on the one hand and loving your neighbor as yourself on the other hand, you have just summarized 613 commandments of Mosaic Law. You boil it down into loving the Lord God and, and loving your neighbor. And so that is a, an appropriate doctrinal synthesis. We, in, in, in doctrinal churches, we have a uh, affinity the right word an affinity a kinship uh, um, we have a uh, there are there is an aspect of Phariseeism in doctrinal churches and I say that because the good elements we want to imitate the bad elements we've got to be on guard against absolutely on guard against and I've known doctrinal pastors, I've known doctrinal believers, I've known people with the finest teaching in the world, but they're Pharisees in their outlook towards others. Superior in their outlooks towards others. Because they've had all this great teaching, and this person they're talking to is a, uh, uh, well, they're just a, you know, a watered-down Baptist or a wishy-washy Methodist, or they don't have the doctrine I have. <laughs> Yeah, they don't have the pride you have either. In any event, um, there is a kinship in terms of the positive history of the Pharisees. I've tried to share this a number of times um, that I would encourage you to learn about the origin of the Pharisee party. Learn about the origin of they followed a literal hermeneutic to the scriptures. They were devout students of the word of God until, of course, they wrested power from the Sanhedrin away from the Sadducees and got some power of their own and then the power went to their head and they kind of became corrupt and prideful in the Pharisees that we see in the New Testament. We don't want to have anything to do with them. But the original Pharisees in the Maccabean era were tremendous. They were patriots. Whoops. 
patriots. They love their country. They serve their country. They they died uh, defending their country against the, uh, the the Greeks when they waged war against the uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and the, and the Seleucid Empire and so forth. Great story. And had I been alive on the earth in that day, I'd have been a Pharisee because I would have loved their reverence for the word of God. I would have eaten up their literal hermeneutic and I'd have been preaching the word of God. Hey, the word of God says this. Okay. The Sadducees said, oh, well, we don't believe in the angels of the resurrection. <laughs> Pharisees said, you nut job, look at this, it's in the Bible. And they defended the Bible, see. Um, the Sadducees were all happy, the, the priests, and they had these uh, high priests that had been appointed by uh, uh, Herod and other Roman officials. Pharisees said, no, wait a minute, you've got to be a descendant of Aaron, a son of Levi. This, is, this priesthood is corrupt. Other things, uh, even uh, taking their stand when, when, uh, when the, the Maccabeans themselves, today the Jews look at that as their golden era, the great, the good old days, when they, they put Levites on their throne. <laughs> the Pharisees stood up and said, wait a minute, the throne belongs to David. The scepter is not to depart from Judah. And uh, the, the, the Pharisees were the, uh, the fundamental biblicists of their day. So we've got a, if, if you understand their origin in, and you understand the origin of Bible churches, independent doctrinal categorical type Bible churches, there are some parallels there in good ways. And also we want to be on guard against the parallels that can also be there in bad ways. If doctrinal pride starts to creep in in, a, in an arrogance that says that, you know, the, the, the maximum rewarded believers, the judgment seat of Christ are going to be, uh, you know, all the, ice categorical doctoral pastors from theme to brawn to Carnegie and then on down to everybody that's ever been in a doctrinal church. See, and then maybe there'll be another echelon below that where the apostles will come in and things like that. See, <laughs> all right. His doctrinal synthesis is super. Uh, you know, you, you turn to Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 6.5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Here's the great Shema, the great Jewish statement of defending the monotheism of Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. You shall love... Yahweh, the Lord, your God, your Elohim, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Okay. There's a text question on the verse and then the Septuagint version. That's why you have heart, soul, might, and then mind comes up in some renderings. And uh, by the time you get to the New Testament, they're kind of combining both the Hebrew text and the Greek text and giving you all four of them. So here's loving the Lord your God. But there's nothing in here about loving your neighbor. That's over in Leviticus. Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19.18. And so how do we go from Deuteronomy to Leviticus? How do we combine these? Well, you study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. You study here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. Classifying and categorizing principles of doctrine. Leviticus 19. 
And you'll know, goodness, this is there's all kinds of stuff in here about uh, ministering to the poor and to strangers and stealing and robbing and uh, judicial actions, slandering against your neighbor, hating your fellow countrymen, so on and so forth, vengeance. And it says, in the second part of verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, so there's your two verses. Now, a question might arise when it says, bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there's the debate. Well, who is my neighbor? Do we limit it to your people? In which case it could be the Jews and we can exclude Gentiles and Samaritans. How how exactly, how far do we got to take this? Where's the line? All right, and that's um, it's important in one sense, but you want to ask yourself, why are you asking the question? <laughs> um, because the question in itself is legitimate, but you can make it kind of illegitimate. And besides the point, if your motivation for asking the question is wrong to begin with, and I'll illustrate that here in a couple ways, but. Um, For instance, when Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? Okay. Well, I suppose if the heart is right, then that's a legitimate question. You want to know what uh, what is the degree of forgiveness, what is the limit of forgiveness, the extent, so on and so forth. But he had a number in mind, and you wonder if it's because maybe he'd already reached that in a couple of cases. (laughs) Right? You know, I'm sitting here at six, almost seven, and wondering if this can be the last time that I... uh, I have to forgive somebody for something. The Lord said, no, 70 times 7, don't even count. Kind of principle on that. And so you ask, well, okay, you want to know, well, where's the line? Why do you want to know that? Why do you want to know that? And in this case, who's my neighbor? And you ask, well, where's the line? Where's the line? And you ask yourself, well, why do you want to know that? As far as the, uh, and this is is important for legalists, you know, if they have a line, and that was part of what they did with the law, they, they thought of the law as a fence. And they said, okay, here's a fence, and if you cross the line, then you've defied, you've broken the law, you've defied God's will. And so they thought of the law as a fence. And then what they did was they built another fence outside of that one. And they did so on purpose. They wanted to. They wanted to make the law harder. The philosophy being, and you can do this with your neighbor, I guess, <laughs> right? You have a fence between your house and your neighbor's house, your yard and your neighbor's yard, okay? Well, if you don't want them crossing your fence, how would it help if you maybe built another fence five feet on the other side of your fence? <laughs> You'd probably have to eat up some of his yard to do that, but, you know, do what you want to do, right? So you put a bigger fence on the other side, and so what, what does that do? Well, that guarantees he's not going to cross your fence. Because then you'd have to go over two fences to get into your yard. See, that's what they do. They, they make the law harder to say, hey, if you follow this religion, this, this legalistic standard, then you're good. And there's no way you're going to cross God's commandments because we put the fence even further out. We made it more restrictive and difficult and impossible. Never mind that it was already impossible to begin with. <laughs> okay, you see the point on this? Now, it's interesting, though is when people want to know, well, where's the line? Many times they want to know where the line is so they can play with it. 
They can dance close to it, flirt with it, toy with it, kind of, you know, don't want to break the rules, but, you know, how much fun can I have without actually sinning kind of a thing. Say, you know, and any application. I had a young man in a teen class ask me, uh, you know, where's where do you cross the line in terms of uh, physical, you know, intimacy or whatever, kissing, you know, holding hands, things with dating in, in, in a teenage concept of modern American high schools, you know. And he said, well, how how far can you go? And I said, well, why are you asking? <laughs> what, what are you playing with? What are you, what are you, uh, what's the real motivation here? What's, obviously, all right. So you ask the question, are you trying to glorify Jesus Christ with every thought, word, and deed, or are you serving yourself and trying to figure out how much fun you can have without going too far kind of thing? All right. I will say that. Let me say, that person is not in this church, never has been in this church. He was a visitor, a guest, a friend of somebody who... <laughs> comes to this church, all right? So don't be all worried that, oh, was this my child, all right? Because some of you here have kids that in years past used to be in my teen class, all right? So it's nobody. You don't know who it is. You'll never find out. I'll take that to my grave. But be assured it was none of your children. It was a visitor. It was a guest, a school friend of a friend that came to my class one time. So, I'll be careful. <laughs> I got parents all scared. Ooh, was that my daughter? Was that my son? They're the current students. That's right. Yeah, they're the current students. All right. So this doctor, this uh, lawyer, now has a doctrinal synthesis of these passages, and he is right on target. He has a great synthesis of these passages to summarize the law. They can be summarized in this way. It's, it can be a recap of the law. And as I pointed out, you got a, a corollary passage over in, in Mark 12 where we find that you can boil it down to those two great commandments. Now, in Luke 10, he's not boiling it down. He's trying to deserve eternal life. But in Mark 12, the issue is how do you boil it down? And he says, well, you boil it down in this way. All right. Mark 12:28. again, we looked at it a little bit a moment ago. Um, what commandment is the foremost of all? And so he tells them, and then he gives them a second one. Notice the first one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Jesus gave a blended quotation too, by the way, of the Hebrew and Greek text there. And then he says the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so he spells them out. He says, look, these two commandments comprise the whole law, encapsulate the whole law. Just in those two commandments alone. So the lawyer has the right answer. And Jesus tells him you have the right answer. He says, do this and you will live. In other words, he says, keep the law Keep the law, and you can earn eternal life. You can inherit eternal life. Keep the law. Be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, since we have a New Testament frame of reference, we can appreciate the tongue-in-cheek. We can appreciate the um, 
the humor behind it. The, there, there, there are logical fallacies at play here, and Jesus lets them slide just for the moment, just to say, okay, there you go, right? It's kind of like in the, um, there was an old Calvin and Hobbes strip. You ever read Calvin and Hobbes years ago, back in the day? There was one Calvin and Hobbes strip where Calvin's walking out of his house, and he says, bye, Mom, or something, and he, and he talks about, oh, he says he's going to uh, he's gonna grow a beard. He wants to grow a long beard like those guys in ZZ Top. Of course, Calvin's just a six-year-old little kid, right? And so what does the mom say? She says, yeah, okay, go ahead. Right? Calvin says he's going to grow a beard, and his mom says, okay, go ahead. Just with the humor of a perspective that realizes he's not going to grow a beard for another decade and by the time he starts, see, maybe more than that. So when Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. It's like Calvin's mother saying, yeah, go ahead, go, go grow a beard. It's not going to happen. <laughs> that lawyer or anybody else is not going to keep the law. Not 100% all the time. See, we understand that. This is what I want to get to, and this is what we'll, we'll get to what we can today and save the rest for next week about the law. The doctrinal synthesis was correct in itself, but it also contained a logical fallacy. It contained a logical fallacy. It was correct so far as it went, but it failed to acknowledge some things. The doctrinal synthesis was correct in itself, but it also contained a logical fallacy. And I'm going to spell that out. We've got some subpoints, one, two, and three under this. This is... Main point four now, subpoint B. And I'm going to give you three other subpoints under this. And the fallacy is this. It's a fallacy of a flawed assumption. It's a flawed premise. In your logic courses, they call it the bare assertion fallacy. I just think of it as a flawed premise. Your logic is broken because you had a starting point that was wrong on the starting point. Here's the starting point. Adherence to the law produces worthiness to earn eternal life. There's a flawed premise. Adherence to the law produces worthiness to earn eternal life. That's his premise. And on the basis of that premise, okay, keep the law. Adherence to the law produces worthiness to earn eternal life. That's the flawed premise. The reason why it's flawed is because it's not true. Even if somebody could... That's not what would deserve them eternal life. That's what would simply keep them from being uh, disqualified from God's presence. Might be a nuance there, but let's look at Hebrews 10.1. Remind ourselves what God's commentary of the law deals with here. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, notice, never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year. We just had it. Here, we just passed another Day of Atonement. Another Rosh Hashanah. Another New Year. Another Day of Atonement. Again, 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 year after year after year after year. How many times are we going to do this thing? 
They can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. See, all the law can do is condemn. All the law can do is is identify the sin and rebellion when it takes place. And if you adhere to the law and keep the law and don't break anything, as long as you can do that, and, and you can do it for you know a day, a week, a month, however long you perfectly keep the law, Paul was convinced he was keeping it really well. As to the righteousness found in the law, he said, I'm, I'm found blameless. And does that, but, but does that perfect him? And it cannot perfect. All it can do is condemn when the violation occurs. And so if... I'm in this state of, I'm not condemned yet, not condemned yet, I'm keeping the law, keeping the law. But it's not perfecting me. It's still hanging over my head, waiting for tomorrow. Waiting for my next failure. Waiting for when I do uh, produce a violation, you see. And it never perfects. It just hangs over your head, waiting to fall. But it never offers perfection. It was not designed to offer perfection. That was never its purpose. If it could have produced perfection, it would have ceased to have been offered. It would have reached a uh, a uh, culmination, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But every single year, here it comes again: more sacrifices, more sins. So there's the flawed uh, premise. Adherence to the law produces worthiness to earn eternal life. That's his premise. And he thinks he's done it. Then he wants to know, well, wait a minute. Technicality here. Who's my neighbor? (laughs) Maybe I've still got more work to do. (laughs) All right. And Jesus finally, yeah, yeah, you got more work to do. Give up. You can't earn it. Can't deserve it. Secondly, though, beyond the flaw in the premise, on top of that, is the inability of man to keep the whole law 100% perfectly for an entire human life. No one can do it. Beyond the flaw in the premise is the inability of man, any man, to keep the whole law 100% perfectly for an entire human life. If you break one point, you've broken the entire law. So keep the whole law 100% perfectly for an entire human life. Jesus Christ is the only human being to ever do such a thing. You know, in Matthew 5:48, we find out that the standard is perfection. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you break one point of the law, what have you done? You've broken the whole law. Actual truth. Perfect fulfillment of the law demonstrates worthiness to provide eternal life. We're at the top of the hour, so we'll come back to this next week, but I want to give you this to think about and and contrast it with number one. There's a difference between adherence to the law and fulfillment of the law. The lawyer was adhering to the law. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Here's the actual truth. Perfect fulfillment of the law demonstrates worthiness. Doesn't produce worthiness. Demonstrates 
The worthiness Jesus already had, eternally has, to provide eternal life. Not to earn eternal life. Jesus wasn't trying to earn eternal life by fulfilling the law. Making provision for eternal life. We got scripture here, Hebrews 5, 9, Romans 10, 3 through 5, and Galatians 4, 4 and 5. We'll look at all those next week. But as you get it down, let me, uh, let me underline some things. Because we have adherence to the law contrasted with perfect fulfillment of the law. And the Pharisee was under the belief that adherence to the law would produce worthiness. Whereas Jesus Christ demonstrated that perfect fulfillment of the law demonstrated worthiness. The lawyer was under the belief, changing colors here, the lawyer was under the belief that adherence to the law producing worthiness would allow him to earn eternal life and yet Jesus Christ, in His perfect fulfillment of the law, demonstrates His worthiness to provide eternal life. To not just inherit eternal life personally, but to become the source of life, the provision of life to all who believe in His name. So, you have parallel statements there that have three areas of distinction that we want to focus on as we read Hebrews 5, 9, Romans 10, 3 through 5, and Galatians 4, 4 and 5. And we'll be, uh, we'll be doing that one week from today. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. That didn't produce His worthiness. It demonstrated His worthiness. And He didn't earn eternal life. He provides eternal life. The first man, Adam, was a life, became a living soul. The last man became a life-giving spirit. And there's a contrast in there we'll address when we look at these verses. Hebrews 5, 9, Romans 10, verses 3 through 5, and Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Great passages that help us, by the way. They point out why did God give the law in the first place? Why does God give mankind a whole bunch of rules that nobody can keep? There you go. Okay. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word. And thank you, Father, that we are not under law, but we are under grace. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. That, Father, we're pleased to be baptized in him. He is pleased to be indwelling each one of us. And, Father, we thank you that as we walk in Christ, as we walk in grace, Father, we're walking in the law of Christ, the newness of life. What a delight. What a privilege. What a blessing. Father, I pray that uh, as we continue to study this passage that we'll have an understanding of it. We'll be able to make an application of it, particularly in the sacrificial, unconditional, integrity love that the, uh, the Good Samaritan uh, illustrates for our own uh, admonition. So, Father, uh, be at work to make this more than simply an academic study. Make it real in our thinking that we might live it to the glory of Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen.